All right, good morning, Mercy Hill Church. My name is Brad. I'm one of your pastors. And since you don't have a listening guide today, um, let me give you just a minute to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, there's Bibles in the back if you don't have a paper Bible and you'd like a copy in your hands. Um, you're more than welcome to go grab one of those, and they're our gift to you. If you don't have a copy of the English Standard Version and you'd like one, that's what we typically, not always, but typically preach out of. There's coffee to your left as well, so if anybody needs it, go for it. Hebrews chapter 6, we took a pause from the book of Hebrews and did a short two-week sermon series on baptism and the Lord's Supper, and now we're coming back to this book that we have entitled this sermon series, Jesus is Better. And you're going to see why as we study this morning. Hebrews chapter 6, follow along as I read from verses 4 through 12. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of Jewish converts who were struggling in their faith. The cultural climate had changed, and what had once been easy to live out the claims of Christ was now very oppressive. And there was a temptation on their part to draw back, to be weary, to be sluggish, if you will. And the key that unlocks the book of Hebrews is a very, it's a deep book to study, and as we've studied it, the key that unlocks the book of Hebrews is this phrase, Jesus is better. The writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to a, a group of Jewish converts, and it's difficult at times for us to understand because he's using analogies from the Old Testament that would be a simple summary of their faith. And so it made great sense to them. But the key that unlocks the book of Hebrews is to remember that the new covenant is better than the old. 
The new covenant is better than the old because of Jesus. And he's used analogies all throughout the book from the old covenant. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than Moses. Jesus is better than the book of the law. Today, we look at a passage of Scripture that's a very difficult passage, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. It's probably one of the most difficult passages to preach on in all of the Bible. But before I get to that, I want each of us to admit that the Christian life is difficult. We don't often like to admit that. Miss Trudy amended me. And I'm not going to pick on Miss Trudy, but Miss Trudy has seen a little bit more life than some of the rest of us. And she knows that if life hasn't caught up with you yet, it will. Life is hard. And the Christian life is difficult. We've been called by God to make disciples in the everyday stuff of life. And making disciples isn't difficult. Making disciples is impossible without the work of the Spirit. In the book of Hebrews, even though at times it's tenacious, it's hard-hitting, it's difficult to understand, we should not grow weary because it speaks very relevantly to the culture and the context in which we find ourselves today. I think it's a great study for the Western church. It's so difficult of a book to interpret that there aren't a lot of churches that you'll find who will study the book of Hebrews. But it's a perfect study for the Western church. Because we as Christians in America are constantly, more than ever, and we'll be facing this in the future, we will be tempted to draw back. We will be tempted to be sluggish. We will be tempted to withdraw and only worry about our faith because of the oppressors that are around us, the culture that says we don't want to hear about your religion and we don't want to hear about your Savior. But we'll also be tempted to naturally draw back because life is hard. I've been traveling a good bit over the last couple of weeks. We got back in town on Thursday, and my neighbor came over, and we were having casual conversation. And I noticed that he didn't seem as if he looked good. He didn't look like himself. And he said, I, I, I got a poor diagnosis. And I said, I'm so sorry. Do you mind telling me what it is? And he said, pancreatic cancer. They give me a year to t- or maybe two to live. And sadness just... Uh, swept over me. I don't even know this man very well. He had a great attitude. He said, I could have died in Vietnam 30, 40 years ago. He said, I've lived a full life. My kids are grown. I'm 68. It's been a good life. But even in that, even with that great attitude, there is a sadness that comes to us in this life because we weren't created for death. We were created for life. God wrote within the very DNA of creation. He wrote life and joy and relationship and sin destroyed that. And so the Christian life is hard. It is difficult. And we will face difficulties in this life. And for each of us, as we face those difficulties, it's a long intro. We're going to get to the text. As we face the difficulties in life, we will be tempted to draw back in so many different ways. Some of us will numb the pain using a variety of different 
people, stuff. Some of us will get real busy. Some of you get really productive when pain enters your life. Your house gets really clean. You get really distracted. And your sluggishness as a Christian is not that you're laying around being lazy. You're laying around trying to be overly productive because you want to distract yourself from the pain that life has brought to you. We use so many different ways to distract ourselves and numb ourselves from the pain. Even Christian cliches like, well, God works all things together for his good, which is true, but denies our feeling and our emotions in the moment, which are so important that we embrace. Or it'll get better. We have so many different Christian cliches that we latch on to as if to say this isn't painful, as if to deny all the struggles that we face in our life. Richard Rohr once said that the majority of people in Western culture live on the periphery of their souls. I think he said maybe 80%. The majority of people in Western culture live on the periphery of their souls, meaning they're scared to death to look back. They're scared to death to consider the wounds within their life. They can't imagine dreaming and looking forward and considering what could be because they're so scared within their little identity that they're making for themselves. And so many of us live on, the, on just the periphery of our souls that we look at our lives and we've withdrawn, we've shrunk back, we're lethargic, we're ineffective. And this book is addressing all those tendencies within our heart and within our life. Now, the context of this particular passage, long intro, I know. I'm going to be quick in the text. Some of you, well, Gowan doesn't believe that because he laughs. And you're probably halfway right, Gowan. But... Some of you, there's like three or four of you who know this book well. You've been to BSF or seminary. You've been waiting on this text. You're like, <laughs> let's see what he does with this one. Hebrews 6 is a difficult passage. Um, within this, the writer is addressing apostasy. Those who renounce the faith. And some of you know people like this. If we're honest, if we come, we'll get so much from this text. If we come, I've, I've used a long introduction to get us here because there's so much more here if we look at it within its context than to pull it out as if it's a systematic theology and just to say, can you lose your faith or not? No, there's so much more that's found in this text than that. And it means so much more to our lives than just simply, can you lose your faith or not? If that's how you address the question, you're missing the point of the gospel. It's not about just heaven or hell. It's not a, a ticket to get out of jail. But within the context of this book, look at one of the most sober passages. And leading up to this, you have to remember that in chapter 5, verse 11, the author was using sarcasm and even scolding this group of people as he rebuked their leaders uh, for their lack of diligence and progress. He said, some of you should be teachers by now. And you need the milk instead of the meat of the word. Because you have withdrawn. You've shrunk back. You've checked out. The big idea for today is this. Salvation results in gospel advancement and perseverance. 
Salvation always results in gospel advancement and perseverance. And when I say gospel advancement, I am first and foremost speaking of gospel advancement in the believer's life first, which will always result in gospel advancement to the world. Salvation results in gospel advancement and perseverance. The writer of Hebrews is motivating us to gospel advancement because it's the only way to be sure of salvation. It's the only way to be sure of endurance to the end. The question that he brings up in chapter 6, verse 4, I want to get into the text, is what about those who don't show advancement? What about those who look as if they've fallen away? For some of you, this is a deeply personal question because you have a father, a mother, a son, a daughter, someone who is that you love dearly. And when you look at their life, we're not to judge, but looking at their life, there is very little evidence if we were to establish a court case that they are advancing in their love for God, in the gospel. And so this is a very, very important question. Two questions I want to answer this morning. If salvation results in gospel advancement and and perseverance, who or what kind of person is described in this text as falling away? That's a big question because I want to know if it's me. Second question is, how do we remain hopeful and persevere? How do we remain hopeful and persevere? Look with me in verse 4. I want to read the text again. Verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. There are three main ways of viewing this text. Very briefly, I'm going to mention them. If you're more interested in knowing a lot of details about these three main ways, you're going to be very disappointed this morning. But I'd love to talk with you. Buy you coffee this week. We'll talk more. One important observation before we get into this specific text. Contextually, if you look at verses 4 through 6, the writer of Hebrews doesn't seem to be describing his current readers. He shifts from first and second person before the text, and he comes back to first and second person after the text, but in the text, he's in third person which seems to point to the fact that he's speaking to other people. It's not hyperbole. It's not, it's not people who might exist one day. There's true people who fit into this paradigm, but I don't think he is speaking completely to his readers. Now, three views. The first view is this. John Wesley, great leader within the Methodist church, held the view that this description in verses 4 through 6 depict real salvation. Real believers who have been indwelt by the Spirit, who have committed their lives to Jesus Christ, who have repented of their sins and followed Him. John Wesley believed that there was a 
possibility that they could fall away from the faith. That they could leave the faith and never come back to Jesus and spend eternity apart from him. And he used this text primarily to prove that. Now, if you haven't ever taken a hermeneutics class or you don't know anything about Bible interpretation, you'll become very confused when the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and they say, turn to the book of Daniel. And they have you read a verse and then they ask you a question and you'll think, well, that doesn't sound like my faith, but that seems to be what the text says. What do we do when we come across a verse in the Bible that doesn't seem to echo and resonate clearly with Orthodox Christianity as we know it? What do we do with that text if it's one verse? We never allow that one verse to inform us on a complete doctrine. Any doctrine that is built off of one verse is usually connected to a cult. Whenever you see a major doctrine of the Christian church, there will be, you'll see that doctrine represented all throughout Scripture. It'll be upheld even within the Old Testament. And that would be my argument. As great of a leader as John Wesley was, that would be my argument that there are much clearer texts in order to answer the question, can we fall from faith? And I've got three texts that I want to show you on the screen. The first is in John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. I'm not going to read them real fast because I want you to hear the evidence of God's grace that's found in these texts. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Isn't that amazing? John 10, 28 and 29. The next is Romans 8, verses 38 and 39. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Did you get that? Go back to verse 38 for a minute. Nor things present, nor things to come nor things in your past. There is nothing you've done, nothing you will do that will separate you from the love of God. There's nothing that, that can come into your life that would cause you to say, I'm just not good enough. Jesus couldn't love me. Your identity is found in Christ. Philippians 1.6 is the last. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Amen? We persevere not because we have the moxie, not because we have it deep down within us as we dig. We persevere because of Jesus. We persevere because Jesus is the one who found us and rescued us, and Jesus refuses to let us go. The second view of this text is one that I could find some agreement with, although I'm not completely sure. Don't you love that? 
You're like, he's going to get through this, and he, he's not going to come down clearly. Well, we'll see. The second view is that this text is describing participation in the life of the church, but not true belief. You say, well, how, how could that be? I mean, this is really clear. Read it. Well, in light of the verses we just read, could it be that they were once enlightened? Meaning they've heard the truths of the gospel. If you've heard the truths of the gospel, you have the opportunity for your heart to be enlightened. Maybe they've even been baptized. They've tasted the heavenly gift. What, what would that be? Maybe they regularly participate in the Lord's Supper and they're reminded of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on a regular basis. They've shared in the Holy Spirit. How can you share in the Holy Spirit? If you're part of a congregation, you see evidence of God's grace in the work of the Holy Spirit on a weekly, if not daily basis, if you're living in community. We're going to see evidence of death, burial, and resurrection this morning. We're going to see that symbolically portrayed in front of our eyes as Steve Nelson is baptized. And, And if you get to know Steve's story, you will see, just as in your story, that God has done a miracle in his life. God's raised him to life. That's a work of the Spirit. And so it's possible to be a part of a congregation, see evidence of the Holy Spirit, even tasting the goodness of the Word of God. So you hear the gospel preached regularly. Maybe you even know the gospel well enough that you've shared the gospel with others. But Jesus says in, in the book of Matthew, we don't have time to go there, you can look at it later, that there'll even be those who show evidence of gospel fruit. They will even have preached the gospel, but they don't know him. I think verse 2, or or rather the second view of this text, may illustrate that. People who are affiliated with the church, but not true believers. The third view, I kind of like, and I'm still hung up between the second view and the third. The third view is this. The third view is that the writer is making a direct reference, not to the sacraments, but to the experience of God's people in the Exodus. You say, now, where out of left field did that come from? This doesn't say anything about the children of Israel. Here's here's the problem with all the other views. If you look at the five exhortations within the book of Hebrews, four of them refer to the Old Testament. And then there's this one. Could it be that the writer is pointing back to the over a million people who left Egypt, traveled together. You say, how does all this terminology fit in? Well, if you look and you think about their Old Testament situation, they were enlightened. Say, how were they enlightened? By a pillar of cloud by day and by a pillar of fire by night. That's pretty enlightening. See that right there? It's God following doesn't get much clearer and simpler than that, does it? doesn't get much clearer and simpler than the Red Sea parted and we went across on dry land. And nobody can ever remember that happening before. Hmm. They were enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. What heavenly gift? Tasted manna every day. 
uh, they shared in the Holy Spirit. You say, well, the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Listen, there was miracle after miracle after miracle that we see. And they shared in the goodness of the word of God that was brought to them through the law. And in that example, this group of people You say, what's the point of all this? We're looking at these three views. Does it really matter? The majority of those who left Egypt, listen to this. The majority of those who left Egypt did not enter the promised land because they rebelled against the Lord, giving us a great and a terrible picture of apostasy. They would leave the faith. Don't be so prideful, Christian, that if over a million people could see great evidence of God on a daily basis and the majority of them turn from the faith, don't be so prideful to think that it could not happen to you. Knowledge of the gospel is not enough. Understanding and even intellectually affirming Christian teaching is not enough for salvation. Doctrine and knowledge of the scriptures is important But it's only through knowing and trusting in Jesus that we find faith. As important as the scriptures and doctrine are, as important as showing up and worshiping Jesus is, as important as serving and giving of our tithes and our offerings, none of those things matter if we don't know Jesus personally. If we haven't repented of our sins and placed our faith in Jesus and followed after him, true saving faith is a relationship. Trust comes when we trust in the person and the work of Jesus. And that means for us that the church is no place for playing games. And it's one of the things that scares me the most about the Western church today And I've been sucked into it part of my life. Um, Andrew and I talk about this regularly, and we, because we run a lot together, and we could be wrong. But it scares me to death when we look into Scripture and don't think that it's relevant enough. And so then all of a sudden, that we have to come and we have to somehow make God's Word relevant. And so we teach on it in such a way that we never reference the Scripture. And we just kind of talk topically about how the scriptures give us a better life, but we never warn people. We never warn people of how difficult this life is. And so we have our elders, and and, and Andrew and I, we're working on this, and we're going to teach on, uh, in the future, we're going to teach more on why do we worship the way that we worship? Because we don't use fog machines and smoke. And we don't honestly think that we need to have the most incredible band. In fact, there's some times that I think that we might even need to have less band. Because we show up here to worship the living Savior, Jesus Christ. And we show up here not to be entertained. But we show up not to focus on a person other than Jesus. And I understand that there's a lot of ways that you can do that. And through God's grace, the contemporary church, I pray that it benefits and glorifies Jesus. When I say the contemporary church, I mean all the contemporary stuff that if I am, if we're not careful, I'm scared will become a distraction 
in our attempts to market Jesus, as if he is not enough, as if his word is not enough, as if his saving relationship is not enough. And what that means, sorry for the rabbit trail, what that means is that there is no place for playing games or for loitering within the church. When you hear the gospel and you understand what's taught, you have an obligation to God to press into faith and follow him. You have an obligation. You say, why? Because the gospel may not be available later. You say, who are you to say that? Who are you to say otherwise? Who are you to say that your heart is going to be more tender the next time after already hearing the gospel and denying it? That's why Paul writes and he says, today is the day of salvation. The writer goes on to illustrate, I think with great clarity, what he's trying to get across to us in verse 7 and 8. Listen to what he says. For land that has drunk the rain, that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. It's very simple. What's important is not where the rain falls, but the fruit that's produced as a result of the rain. See, anyone can hear the Word of God. Anyone can go through the motions of baptism and the Lord's Supper and church membership, but the question that the writer of Hebrews is getting to is simply this. What is the fruit of your life? What is evidence within your life that you are a true follower of Jesus? Because this is the true indicator of persevering faith. Are you a person who's growing in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness? self-control, the fruit of the Spirit. Now, this is not to say that Christians don't sometimes do horrific things, because we do. We do. The Apostle Peter is an example. But the fruit of his life points to his persevering faith. Unlike Judas, Peter returned to the Savior. He found forgiveness. And this text is a huge warning to the church, not just to outsiders, but to those in the church that if you aren't willing to trust Christ for salvation today, what makes you think that tomorrow will be different? It grows harder to embrace Christ the longer you wait. I've noticed over the years, this is surprising, that if you meet an adult who is vile toward Christianity, I, I know some neighbors who they are vile they have a hatred toward the church. They regularly post of their hatred on social media. And I'm usually surprised, I don't know why, to dig back in their past. And almost always you will find a person who was raised in church and now has a rock hard heart toward the things of the gospel. They know the claims of the gospel. They aren't foreign to them. You find someone that the gospel is foreign to them, you'll have the most amazing conversation. They'll ask you questions. They'll say, tell me what's in the Bible. Start at the beginning. They're open. 
You meet someone who's vile toward the gospel in the church. Nine times out of ten, they grew up in the church and they have a hard heart because they've rejected the gospel over and over again. Andrew Murray said this. I don't have it in a quote on the screen for you, so it's a quote from Andrew Murray. I'm going to read it slowly. My assurance of salvation is not something I can carry with me as a railway ticket or a banknote to be used as occasion calls. My assurance of salvation is alone to be found in the living fellowship with the living Jesus in love and obedience. With that being said, how do we remain hopeful and how do we persevere? Because that's how this text ends. Look in verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, and don't worry, I know I'm on my second point, but I'm more than 50% through the message. We're going to get to the potluck. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, listen to what the right. I love the fact that the writer, we don't know who he was. Some people say Paul, some say Barnabas. We don't know. He is a pastor who knows his congregation. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Praise God. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. He's speaking to us. He's speaking to the church. You know, in World War II, General George S. Patton, he was well known for cultivating the spirit of attack. If you look at his battle plan and his strategy, he cultivated that spirit of attack in the heart of his soldiers. And in the later months of 1944, his swift advance of his troops stunned the German army. It played a major role in the collapse of Hitler's forces. Patton's primary strategy was, if at all possible, to attack. Because when you're in battle... The greatest security is in advancing after the enemy. Not in drawing back, but in advancing. When, when he was asked why this was his strategy, he just simply replied, I don't like paying for the same real estate twice. Some of us in the Christian life have been paying for the same real estate over and over and over again. Go back to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The natural inclination of the Christian life is to drift. Never to drift toward mission, never to drift toward Jesus, but to drift away. And some of us have been paying for the same real estate over and over again because we do not have a heart that is set on Jesus and we do not have a life that is focused on attack. How do we remain hopeful and persevere? I want you to think about this as we conclude this morning. How do you live into salvation? See, salvation isn't something that, we talk about this a lot in our missional communities, but salvation isn't something that happened in the past that just changed you, and now we're just kind of sitting around twiddling our thumbs as if 
We're just waiting on that trumpet to sound and for Jesus to return. No, salvation is ongoing. How do you live into salvation? And I think one of the ways that we see that within this text is we do it by leaning into community. There's a lot that could be preached here. There's like four or five sermons. I just want to end with this thought. Look back at verse, I believe it's verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work. Christian, what you do matters. What you do matters. God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. How do we remain hopeful and persevere? We lean into community. We attack by refusing to isolate ourselves, refusing to live out this Christian life alone. What gave the writer confidence that these recipients of his letter had not fallen from the faith? What gave him confidence that they were persevering the way in which they loved one another. Look at verse 10. God's not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, the way that they loved one another. One of the most dangerous places for a Christian is to regularly participate in religious church services without truly participating in community. In life on life with other believers, one of the most dangerous places for a Christian is to make their Christianity all about religion, which turns into ritual. I do the right things. I give. I go. I study. It's one of the most dangerous things when we are incorporated day by day is what we see in the New Testament. Day by day, they lived in community together. You say, why? Because they were serving. Why does that matter so much? Because when we live in community, we, we are no longer tempted to see ourselves as the center of our faith. But we're reminded that God is the center of our faith. You say, what do you mean? You live in community around here and you're going to be forced into service. Like it's not a choice. I mean, you show up at Matt and Tiffany's missional community, they're going to hand you a kid because if they both are holding one in each arm, they still don't have enough arms. You are going to be reminded that service is part of what it means to live out your faith. And that's a good thing. Because if you isolate, you will be tempted to think that the Christian life is all about you, which will make church become all about meeting your needs. And that's a very dangerous place to be. He calls them to community also because we'll never experience healing if we're hiding all alone. Within community comes accountability. And within accountability comes repentance and joy. And finally, it's easy to become cynical and sluggish when we're all alone. It's easy to become doomsday people when we're all alone. It's easy to get your food and your guns together and go underground and just hold up. 
You know, those fires are burning out west. I heard there was an earthquake the other day here. I think the Lord's return's coming. World's going to hell in a handbasket. Let's go buy some more bullets. It happens when you're not in community. But the author's reminding us. He's saying, lean into your salvation. Be on the attack. Persevere. There is no greater way to live into salvation. There is no greater way to lean into community than through the Lord's Supper. In it, we are reminded of the sacrificial life of Jesus that he lived in order to provide not just this communion, but the communion that we share with God the Father. Through the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And make no mistake about it, the Lord's Supper is not for those who have it all together. The Lord's Supper is not for good people. The Lord's Supper is for sinners. Those who are in need of God's grace. So be encouraged today, Christian. We serve a God who has placed our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he remembers them no more. And this passage tells us that he, while he remembers our sin no more, he does remember every act of love that we express, every act of service, every good work accomplished in his name does not go unnoticed. What an amazing grace that our Savior would remember us in that way. Oh, what blessed forgetfulness. He's the best of friends. Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus also said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. At Mercy Hill Church, we invite everyone who has declared their faith in Jesus to worship with us at his table. You don't have to be a member here. Our only request is that this table be for believers. For those who have repented of their sins and placed their faith in Jesus, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. I'm going to pray, invite the band to come up, and then I invite you to his table. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the reminders of these great truths from your word. God, I pray for those who have found themselves to be merely going through routine. God, I pray for those who have recognized their hard-heartedness. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict today. I pray for people who have been a part of the church but don't truly know you, God, that they've never truly bowed their knee to you and humbly turned their lives over to you. They've never come to a point of really saying, God, I need your forgiveness. I believe that Jesus' death on the cross was for my sins and that through his resurrection that I can have life. God, I pray that you would warn their heart to the gospel today and that they would be saved. God, I pray for Christians who are feeling lethargic, who are weary. 
pray that we would remain hopeful, that we'd persevere by imitating the Savior. God, I pray that we would never grow weary of good deeds that you call us to, but that we would, we would be reminded that in the very words of our Savior, that he said, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And that we too, for the joy that is set before us, would endure this life, but that we would persevere through Jesus' work and through his life and through our Savior who holds us completely. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. His table is open. We invite you um, to make two aisles and then you can exit to the sides.